Merry Bowl season and welcome back to the Lions College Football Podcast. I'm Brett Gibbons with thelions.com and as always, I'm joined by the one and only Kelly Ford. Kelly, it's time to go now. It's it's the big bowl time. How are you feeling about our New Year's Six slate and uh, the adjacent games? I'm feeling great about where we are in bowl season, Brett. Don't ask me what day it is because I'm really not sure. We got college football on all the time, all hours of the night. I love it. It's awesome. That's what it's all about during bowl season, and I'm excited to continue breaking down these games here with you today. Um, we're going to have some great matchups, so I can't wait to talk about them. Yeah, I, I need to put a disclaimer up front, though, and we were talking about this before we hit uh, record here. We record these when we can, right? We'll peek behind the curtain. It's Wednesday afternoon while we're doing this. Uh, these videos may not get posted for a little bit of time after that. Lines are moving like crazy, guys. There's opt-outs. There's opt-ins. If we get something wrong on here, we are doing the absolute best we can with the information that we have available at time of recording. So if we put this out and the lines move two points, I'm sorry. I have no control over this right now. It's the Wild West uh, on the odds boards. And to be honest, it's a... been a tough bowl season i I will i will absolutely assess myself and say i have not been doing that great of a job so far on here on bowl season but uh hopefully this is a fulcrum point and we can start uh trending upward instead of kind of flatlining here but before we get into all the games don't forget to follow the lines on twitter at the lines us i'm at road to cfb and kelly's work can be found at k ford ratings well we're almost at the end here but we'll be continuing to break down the entire college football postseason slate as well as the playoffs that are upcoming here. Um, like I said, we're into the good stuff, Kelly. Big-time bowl games are on tap, including uh, the New Year's Six Slate, the non-playoff New Year's Six Slate that we will be going over here on this show. I do want to start here, though, in chronological order. We're going to start off with the Gator Bowl, number 22. Clemson is a five-point favorite against Kentucky. This game carries an over-under 45.5 points and kicks off Friday afternoon at uh, 12 p.m. noon Eastern on ESPN. They play this one at TIAA Bank Field. Is that still the name of it? I feel like it's undergone uh, different <laughs> different names here. But anyway, where, where the Jaguars play in Jacksonville, Florida. Uh, Clemson, they're down a lot of pieces defensively. Three players in their secondary aren't going to play. They're also without their linebacker, Jeremiah Trotter. However, uh, Barrett Carter, who I think is probably their best defender on there, is going to play. And it looks like Tyler Davis will play at least a little bit. Uh, Barrett Carter's coming back next year. Tyler Davis is going to the NFL. Uh, I think Davis is probably going to be on a snap count considering he declared for the draft and he's had uh, a lot of injury issues over the course of his career. On the other side, though, Kentucky, complete opposite. They're only down their edge rusher, Keaton Wade. All their other starters will play, and that does include running back Ray Davis, uh, which is a real big boost for that Wildcats offense. I was really disappointed by that unit, though, this year. Uh, I thought that bringing back Liam Cohen was going to be a really big boost for them, and, you know, it... Seeing how Will Levis is playing at times in the NFL kind of leads me to believe it was more uh, the combination, the marriage of Will Levis and Liam Cohen. But uh, the Wildcats just not, not have uh, rebounded offensively like I thought they would. Look, they're last in plays per game right now. And that doesn't always have to do with just pace, but a lot to do with pace. Uh, they, you know, too many three and outs. They're uh, 98th in success rate. They've given the ball away six times in their last three games. And although Clemson's defense is stripped down a bit, I don't think Kentucky's passing game is really its strength on offense, and those secondary absences won't matter as much. Now, I'm not saying they're not going to matter, but just as much as they could. I know that the lines move quite a bit away from them. Uh, opening mark of minus nine, those opt-outs kind of knocked it down a peg, uh, and it's still trending to move away. You can find Clemson minus four and a half. I think that's the side I take here. Uh, they're just a little bit more talented. I don't have a ton of faith in Kentucky's offense. Yeah, line movement in bowl season, Brett. Good luck. Like you said, it's 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 wild out there, as you put it. Um, after losing at NC State in Week Nine, Clemson was four and four, two and four in ACC play, and had two point six fewer wins than my preseason realistic expectations projected through that point in the season, making the Tigers my number four biggest underachievers at that moment in time. Clemson also ranked the season worst number 20 in my power ratings, having fallen more than a touchdown since the preseason. On the bright side, the defense played at a top 10 level for most of the year. And if you listen to Dabo after the Notre Dame win and you, quote, bought all the Clemson stock you could, you'd be happy with the returns down the stretch as Clemson did win their final four games, including on the road at rival South Carolina to end the season in a revenge game, a game that uh, in 2022 maybe kept Clemson out of the playoff. 
Overall, the season was a disappointment, though. This offense never really got going. End of the year number 58. That was a far cry from the top 20 preseason projection that I had for this unit. The Tigers finished number 111 in both my season rating movement and wins relative to expected metrics. To make matters worse, this was the worst Clemson team since 2011 per my power ratings. Not great for Clemson. They're still favored in this game, though, as you said, despite all of that and their opponent here, Kentucky. They had an interesting season of, in their own right. The Wildcats were number 26 in my power ratings in the preseason, Brett, with a regular season win total projection of 6.9. After a 5-0 and start, you'd think those projections would have improved significantly, but the model wasn't impressed with Kentucky's performances against subpar competition, dropping their rating nearly a touchdown and ranking them number 36 nationally. The Wildcats went 2-5 and the rest of the way, but their power rating actually improved slightly during that time, and Kentucky finished number 34 in my power rating rankings. Like Clemson, Kentucky capped off their season with a win on the road against their rival, effectively ending any marginal chance Louisville had. Now it's laughable, seeing as Florida State went all the way and got left out. But at the time, we thought they had a marginal chance of reaching the CFP. My numbers are pretty close to Vegas in this one. At least they were at the time of recording or the time I made some notes, which again was probably 12 hours ago. I have Clemson minus six and a half in this one. If both teams are playing at full strength, obviously they are not. It sounds like the numbers have had a pretty good grasp on Kentucky this year. I know you said that they fluctuated a touchdown, but 6.9 win total projection, right on the money with that one. And then, you know, for uh, starting at 26 and ending at 34, not bad, especially with that, you know, despite that 5-0 and start. Um, yeah, I just don't see Kentucky's inefficient passing offense and, and their slow pace, you know, too many three and outs, like I said. But, uh, you know, if they get left behind, how do they catch back up? Is there an option where if they go down two scores – that, yeah, they can fight their way back into it. They haven't really shown that this year. And I know that they just dropped 38 on Louisville, like you said. The, the end of the season, great game from them. Um, Louisville was in kind of coast mode. We had talked about that game, that they locked up their ACC championship spot. And to be honest, I think the building knew that they didn't really have a great shot at the playoff, um, even if they would have won both of those games. I uh, you know, But maybe that's the route to victory turning over the ball and, and club Nick will turn over the ball. Like that's, that's for sure. If you look at Louisville, uh, they had three turnovers and, uh, and club Nick will turn the football over because boy, I, the ratings uh, system, the, the analysis on him, the projection on him is, uh, missed by just a little bit. Cause he has not shown the ability to be that, that high five star that he was. Um, but the bottom line is I look, I think Clemson is just more talented and Kentucky hasn't really contended with a better, more talented teams when they've been at their A game this year. Uh, so this is Clemson with the points for me. Moving forward to one of the more, uh, one of the most historic bowl games, one of my favorite bowl games on the slate here. Uh, maybe not this year, though. We have uh, the Sun Bowl between number 19, Oregon State, and number 16, Notre Dame. Notre Dame is a six-point favorite in the game, and it carries an over-under of just 41.5 points. We'll get to why here in a minute. It kicks off on Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern on CBS. Keep in mind, this is not one of the ESPN Bowls, one of the few that are on another network. This is on CBS, uh, so we get to hear the CBS crew one more time for the year. And they do play it in Sun Bowl Stadium, which is home to UTEP, one of 13 primary FBS stadiums. Uh, and it is tied for the second oldest bowl game in existence. It kicked off in 1935 for the first time. And it was actually played the first couple of iterations at a field that's next to the current Sun Bowl. So you can actually still go and visit that. I think it's used for track and field now. But if, you, if you're if you a big-time uh, college football historian and, and geek and you want to see that, that stadium still exists right next door. Um, and just visit the Sun Bowl anyway. My goodness, it's one of the best uh, venues in all of sports, in my opinion. Anyway, buckle up. Got a lot to go over here. We'll start with Oregon State. They turn over an entirely new coaching staff, of course. Jonathan Smith off to Michigan State. Defensive coordinator Tyler Bray is the new head coach, but he's actually not going to coach this team for the bowl game. And a lot of people are kind of wondering, why? Like, why, why wouldn't he? It's because the interim that was in place, Bray was kind of like, hey, I'm going to let you have this. You were named the interim. This is your team through the bowl season. So that's why that's going on. There's still plenty of continuity, I think, uh, up there. But, you know, this this coaching staff's on the way out. Quarterback DJU, he's not going to play. Uh, backup Aiden Childs transferred to Michigan State, so he's not going to play. They also have their top two tight ends that left in the portal. Six other starters won't play. There's a chance that three starting offense linemen sit here between injury and the portal. Uh, their kicker also left, and he was a pretty good kicker. And let's just say... You know, the Sun Bowl last year came down to a last-minute kick. If you need a last-minute kick and you don't have your starting kicker, 
that's a problem. Uh, and then running back Damian Martinez, who's kind of the engine for this offense, uh, he had some sort of incident. He was arrested, uh, reportedly arrested, I'm say, but like he was declared eligible after that. But it kind of looks like it, after that, it came out and said he won't play. It was will he, won't he, will he, won't he, he won't. I believe that that's probably team discipline uh, in that case. Okay, that's Oregon State. Other side, <laughs> Notre Dame. Offensive coordinator Gerard Parker, he's leaving for Troy. Some say that that is addition by subtraction. Uh, based on who they're bringing in, I would say that that is true. Uh, Mike Denbrock from LSU, who just led you know Jane Daniels to uh, an ungodly Heisman season. But uh, for this game, I don't know. Uh, quarterback Sam Hartman, running back Audric Estime, they both opted out. Four starting offensive linemen won't play. They're going to start a freshman who has not played a snap this year at left tackle. That's a bit of a concern in my opinion. And then they're also missing five defenders that have 250 or more snaps. Their top three wide receivers are out. In total, 11 of their top 12 offensive players in terms of snap count will not play. Good news, Xavier Watts, Howard Cross, they're both in. Uh, so they have a little bit there, but like, my goodness, offensively, they're just stripped down to, to the backups. Uh, and like no scholarship wide receivers on this team. So, okay. What's actually left here? We said who's not playing, who's actually in. What does this look like? Notre Dame, their quarterback, Stephen Jelly, is going to be the starter. He's a high three-star kid from the 2022 class. He's got, uh, and they still have a lot of uh, experience defensively. Eight starters that are on their uh, Sun Bowl depth chart are in their fourth year of later. So lots of experience there. Oregon State's going to start a familiar name at quarterback, Ben Golbranson. If you watched him last year, he was the guy that led them for most of the back half of the season. Um, and he's got plenty of experience starting there. Tons of great personnel notes and tidbits there, Brett. As always for all these bowls, I'm actually going back to one of the first things you said. I did not realize the Sun Bowl was tied for the second oldest and longest standing bowl. I actually looked it up here while while you were going. Obviously, the Rose Bowl is the, is the longest uh, or the oldest bowl game. The Orange Bowl and the Sugar Bowl are who are what are tied with the Sun Bowl. First played in 1935, as you said. Wow. Did not know that Cotton Bowl, Gator Bowl, Citrus Bowl, Liberty Bowl, the others that come on that list after that. Did not realize the Sun Bowl had such great history. I love it. Um, and yeah, I agree. The fact that it's on CBS, just not just not on ESPN, it, it just it sets it apart a little bit, right? And so it's, it's, it's a fun game every single year. You mentioned all the players opting out or not playing in this game for one reason or another. What does that do for this one? Set against the backdrop of being left for dead in the lame duck Pac-12 conference, Oregon State was such a good story this year. In fairness, the Beavers had one of the easiest schedules of any Power 5 team in 2023, which is why some, including myself, pegged them as a preseason dark horse in the Pac-12 title race. And at 8-2, and two, the Beavers were still in the mix. But the games against Washington and rival Oregon to close the year were always going to be the most difficult test. Oregon State fell just short in both of those games, actually finishing with .2 fewer wins than expected. But from a rating standpoint, power rating standpoint, Oregon State finished number 19, improving their power rating four points since the preseason and finishing as the best team in Corvallis since 2008. It's possible Jonathan Smith would have left at some point anyways, but seeing the former Beaver quarterback leave his alma mater at a time that should have been celebrated, should have been seen as an upward trajectory, if not for conference realignment, and he left for Michigan State, no less, like I mean, Michigan State. It was just really sad for me to see, and it really put a damper on what should have been a great year for Oregon State, at least from a power rating standpoint. And again, they were in the mix late in November for a spot in Las Vegas. Notre Dame was remarkably consistent this year in the eyes of the model. The Irish started the year number 12 and spent every single week between number 10 and number 13 overall in my power ratings. The defense was ranked somewhere between number 7 and number 15 all season while the offense spent more than 80% of the year ranked between number 10 and number 20. 8.7 was the preseason win projection. The Irish finished with 9. In just about every respect, the model simply nailed Notre Dame all year. Probably the most surprising thing I can say about the Irish is with a final power rating of 20.7. Final, I say that. We still have a game to go. i got to figure out what I'm doing with year-end power ratings because in the old, back in when college was starting, Bowl games, you you got everybody playing and it was all out. Now these are these are shells of the of teams in, in many cases. How do I parse through that? Because a final rating for Notre Dame or any team after bowl game may not be as reflective of what this team really was as the rating after the regular season or conference championship games ended. It's only one game out of twelve or thirteen or fourteen in some cases, so it's not going to make a huge difference. I got to figure that out. Regardless, twenty point seven. That's where Notre Dame is now. 
This is the best, quote-unquote, Notre Dame team in my data set since 1993. Yes, this team grades out better than the 2012 team that played for the BCS National Championship game, better than the 2018 and 2020 teams that played in the CFP. I know they lost three games. This was a really, really good Notre Dame team, and I'm excited to see what Marcus Freeman can do with this program moving forward. Yeah, I... They were at the center of the conversation for a large part of the beginning of the year. I remember Notre Dame was one of the most talked about teams uh, in the first month. And, of course, they have that loss to Ohio State, which, to be honest, really should have been a win for them. And if they would have beaten Ohio State, I think our conversation on Notre Dame would have been a lot different. And, of course, you know, 10-2 and two is a little bit different than 9-3. and three, But this team has been, like you said, remarkably consistent all year. They dropped that game to Louisville, but that was after two straight games against ranked opponents and ahead of their rivalry game against USC, which they disposed of. Um, this is a really good team, guys. It, it, it just is. Uh, or I should say, this season, they were a very good right. team because they're missing pretty much everyone. Um, you know, there's not really much left in terms of plays that I see just because the, the number has been hammered into place. Full transparency, I should grab Oregon State on the other side of 8.5 because the writing was kind of on the wall for Sam Hartman. Um, and then the line... You know, move from there to the plus six, plus six and a half after the Hartman news. I think it's actually still kind of trending in favor of Oregon State. Uh, at six or better, I'm probably on the side of Notre Dame here, though. Uh, I think that they just have a deeper team. The defense is absolute nails. Uh, there's a reason that this over under is is so low. Um, they're just they're they're outstanding, uh, and they still have you know Javante John Baptiste. Like they still have a lot of their core guys, very experienced. So I think I still lean. Uh, I think I lean Notre Dame at at six or better here. Moving on to the Liberty Bowl. We have Memphis. Uh, that's an interesting, playing a home bowl game here against Iowa State. Iowa State, a 10.5-point favorite now. That has been climbing in the past couple of days. And this game carries an over-under of 57.5 points. Kicks off Friday afternoon at 3.30 p.m. Eastern on ESPN from, like I said, Simmons Bank Liberty Stadium, home of the Memphis Tigers. Um, even though this is played, in their own stadium. They're actually technically the away team. I, I'm pretty sure that that is the case. Everything that I've seen is at Iowa State. The way they picked them. I think that they're an away team in their own stadium. But this is a rematch of the 2017 Liberty Bowl. If you're looking at this thinking, oh, that looks kind of familiar. Uh, Iowa State won that game in a wild fashion. It was 21-20, to 20, the final score. Uh, Iowa State was pretty statically at minus 7.5 for a while. But here they are on the rise. And to be honest, we haven't seen major opt-outs from like Seth Hennigan or I don't even think he's eligible for the NFL. But any of those guys. And it's just been pure market-driven movement here. Memphis, though, two of their starting offensive linemen won't play. They're missing two key players in the secondary as well. A secondary that sometimes decided not to play football. Most of the time decided not to play football in their games. Iowa State, on the other hand, two of the three leading rushers are in the portal. But Abu Sama absolutely exploded onto the scene late in the year. He had 110 yards on just eight carries against Texas Tech and then 273 yards in the snow on just 16 carries against Kansas State. Uh, they might be without one of their safeties, but otherwise they are uh, intact here. So to find the last time that a game involving Memphis didn't also involve a team scoring at least 38 points, you have to go all the way back to October 13th. To find a game where either team scored fewer than 21, you have to go all the way back to September 9th when they played Arkansas State. When they played any sort of better competition than Arkansas State, there were points on the uh, on, on the scoreboard. And Nate Steelchase, the offensive coordinator for Iowa State, has done a fantastic job with the offense, and the Cyclones have found a lot of success going through the air. Like I said, Memphis' secondary doesn't love playing football all that much. Plus, uh, with Sama, that's the new explosive addition to the offense. They are third. Iowa State is third in offensive yards per play over the last three games. They're only behind LSU and Kansas. And LSU averaged almost 10 points a play at the end of the season there. It's uh, it's impressive company to be part of. Uh, like I said, TJ Tampa might be sitting out. That does hurt Iowa State's secondary. So the combination of this offense absolutely rolling right now, Memphis always playing in shootouts, and both secondaries being a little bit uh, hindered here, I like over 57 and a half points for this game. Now I'm on this historical bowl data trend here, Brett, since you got me going on it. Liberty Bowl first played in 1959. Only seven bowl games have been played more than the Liberty Bowl or been played longer than Liberty Bowl. Um, I'm all over this stuff now, thanks to you. My model, <laughs> if, if everyone's playing in these games, which again, they're not. If everyone's playing, my model likes Iowa State by about five and a half. So it was sitting at seven and a half for a long time. It's now shot up, as you said. Those that view the sport from 30,000 feet, 
have likely noticed that Matt Campbell is one of the better coaches in the country. What he's been able to accomplish in Ames the past few years is pretty remarkable given Iowa State's historical standing in the sport and in the Big 12 as a whole. But even with that context, I'm not sure he's getting enough respect for the job he did in 2023. Just before the season started, there were all sorts of question marks around player availability, important players, no less, due to the sports wagering situation at Iowa State and rival Iowa as well. I projected five and a half wins for the Cyclones with a 50-50 chance to go bowling. All Matt Campbell did was win seven games, including games against Big 12 Championship game participant Oklahoma State, 2022 National Championship game participant TCU, and defending Big 12 champion Kansas State in Farmageddon. The defense was top 25 per usual uh, in recent years here in Ames, and the offense, they were much better than expected, finishing the year number 53 and shooting up those offensive unit ranks here down the stretch, as you mentioned, Brett, what they've done in the last three games on a point-per-play basis. For Memphis, interesting that they're a away team in their home stadium. I wasn't even tracking on that. That is, uh, yeah, when's the last time that happened, if ever? I mean, I, I don't know. Uh, maybe like a Miami team playing in like the the old the old Orange Bowl, like in a national championship game, maybe or something. I have no idea. Like, that certainly it's happened before, not often. For Memphis, the Tigers only lost three games all year. A one possession game at a neutral site against a Missouri team that ended up winning ten games and. Two games against the AAC championship game participants. A one-possession game against eventual conference champ SMU. And a 10-point game against Tulane, the team that was in the New Year's Six last year from the group of five. The Tigers' offense was legit good this year. They ranked number 21 at the end of the year. But you touched on it, Brett. It was the defense. If not for the sub-100 defense that Memphis fielded, it's possible, and I'll, I'll even say likely, that this would be the team representing the group of five in the New Year's Six. They just didn't have a defense. Yeah, well, it is funny that we can frame like, oh, their losses are really good, and they are. That is a very convincing argument about, you know, to Mizzou and Tulane and, and SMU. Uh, but they also, you know, dueled to a 45-42 finish against North Texas, and they allowed 50 points to the USF in a game that they somehow won and also went to overtime 44-38 against Charlotte. So it is a little bit about framing, but, yeah, it, the losses are definitely impressive. I learned a long time ago, Brett, that you can take data and present it really in any way that you want. The exact same data can be presented four different ways to appease four different audiences or four different outcomes. I was going for the angle of I think Memphis was not that far <laughs> away from being in the New Year's Six. You said, Kelly, they also weren't that far away from not going bowling. Yeah. Like, so, I mean, that, that's what it is, though. And hey, that's college football, right? And I always put out yeah. the net one possession, possession graphics and all that. Like, how are you doing in close games? It's crazy, and this is two years in a row. I'll use the most prominent examples, TCU in 2022 and Washington this year. The teams just did not lose close games, and when you're able to bat 100 or 1,000 in close games, you end up in the college football playoff. When you don't bet 1,000 or you just lose more than you win, you're Scott Frost, and I don't yeah. know what you're doing now, but Nebraska can't seem to shake that moniker, right? And so it's crazy how often a team, a coach, a player – their career, their legacy is defined by these razor-thin margins, and it just falls one way or the other. And, yeah, you can then take the data and basically make it say whatever you want. Best nine-loss team ever, the 2021 <laughs> Nebraska Cornhuskers. Yeah. Yeah, it, Memphis only played in four games that were not decided by single digits and uh, only five that were not uh, – I'm sorry, six that were not one score. So half their games – we're one score here. And Ryan Silverfield, something we talked about in the offseason, historically not good in uh, one-score games. But as as we kind of pointed out here, he had a winning record in one-score games this year. So that's not bad. Um, but either way, I love the over in this one just because Memphis opts not to play defense and uh, Iowa State's offense has just been electric. All right, Kelly, this is our first New Year's Six Bowl game that we have on the slate. It's one that's a little bit near and dear to my heart. Um, I got the Ohio State on, but hey, we're going to talk – before people shut this off and say he's an Ohio State homer, you probably want to listen to what I have to say here because it may, may be surprising. But we have number nine, Missouri, against number seven, Ohio State. The Buckeyes are two-and-a-half-point favorites. If you uh, blinked, you might have missed the change on that number. And this game carries an over-under of 49 points. It kicks off Friday night at 8 p.m. Eastern on ESPN from AT&T Stadium in Arlington, of course. So there's some interesting line movement on Ohio State who fell as low as the plus two and a half, which for me, I thought that that was a fair line given all the players that are playing, aren't playing and aren't potentially playing. Um, but it moved five and a half points in like 48 hours. Um, maybe the market was expecting a lot more opt-outs from the Buckeyes and that didn't come or whatever. But again, the last two 
two days have just been wild with line movement, and this is one of the biggest ones. Um, but Ohio State, they do have plenty of absences. Of course, Kyle McCord is off to Syracuse. Wide receiver Julian Fleming, who is kind of the number three, but he was losing that spot as his number three later in the year. He's in the transfer portal. Chip Trainum transferred. I think that that is not insignificant for the Ohio State run game. Mayan Williams, he was hurt late in the year, but he did opt out to go to the NFL draft. Pretty sure Marvin Harrison Jr. isn't going to play. He hasn't dressed uh, at practice yet this week. Still waiting on word for Cade Stover, Josh Proctor, JT Tuamalu, Michael Hall, Tommy Eichenberg. Um, Eichenberg's been at practice, but I think he didn't run through drills on Wednesday. I saw Cade Stover's been practicing, so I think that he'll play. Now, the guys that are playing, and these are a lot that we're expected not to, Denzel Burke, Donovan Jackson, Emeka Buko, who's returning next year, Jack Sawyer, Tyleek Williams, Jordan Hancock. So there are... Ohio State's going to have some starters, but maybe only 70% of their starters and of their like real impact players, probably only half of them are going to be playing in this game. Now, Devin Brown is going to be the guy at quarterback for the Buckeyes. Kelly, I cannot wait for the world to find out that Ohio State's quarterback wears number 33. <laughs> anyway, um, you got all that? That, that was a lot. But it's Brad, I'm, I'm, thinking, I'm thinking Ohio State, if you just took the players that opted out, you could put together a nice little team. Now, they're going to have no depth, but you put together a nice little team. If you need to play like one quarter against somebody yeah. somewhere, that team might be favored against a lot of other full-fledged college football teams. I mean, that's a lot of talent. And, yeah, number 33, playing quarterback. Those of us that have watched Ohio State this year have noticed that, and it just, it's just like visually not appealing. Like you, you're just like, oh, I love this it. Doesn't, this, oh, I disagree. Just, I love it so much. I am not a fan of number 33 <laughs> behind center. I'm just saying it right now. But, yeah, it is it is a lot, and uh, you did a great job breaking all that down. And guess what? Like you said at the top, we're recording this Wednesday, whatever time. By the time this thing drops, I guarantee you that list has changed. Yeah, probably. They're talking about Denzel Burke mulling over, coming back next year, which he probably should. But, anyway, uh, Missouri player news, real brief. Ennis Rakestraw, Tyron Hopper, they're both out with injuries. Those are their top two defenders. The end. That's it. That's all I have to go over with them, which is, thank God. Um, anyway, Ohio State. This is fascinating. Has not lost a non-playoff bowl game since 2011. And before then, 2004. Um, I was in grade school in 04. And that's the second to last time they lost a non-playoff game. Um, And by the way, 2011, you might remember, was that sanctioned year after the signing autographs for haircuts or whatever was going on. Dumb's laughable uh, in today's NCAA. But... Yeah, Ohio State just wins. If they don't go to the playoff, they they beat everybody. And that could be why we're seeing a lot of buyback on the Buckeyes now. Uh, for Missouri, this is their first New Year's Six game since 2013. I believe that was a Drew Locke game. Rakestraw and Hopper, the two out with injury, which of course you hate to see. Yeah. But that's the end of the list, as you said. I love to see that. And I don't, I don't begrudge yes. anybody. I don't blame anybody for opting out of any game. Every single day, every single person in this world does what is best for them, their family, what's in their best interest. College football student-athletes should not be expected to act any differently, and, and I don't expect them to. I am just sad when they don't play because I, I like to see the best product that we can in college football. And these are really, really good players that you're talking about listing that aren't play for one reason or another. I get it. I'm not mad at you. I just am sad because I like to see the best that you have to offer, and, and you guys are that. And so to me, that's I love to see this Missouri team, and I'm excited that they are excited about this opportunity that they have to play in their first New Year's Six game, like you said, since 2013. I mean, this was a great year for Missouri, and I'm, I'm going to get to them here in a second. I'm going to start with Ohio State because they are the favorite in this game. At full strength, my model would make this game Ohio State minus 11.5. But as you just got done outlining, Brett, this Buckeye team is nowhere near full strength. And again, I, I kind of think Missouri probably should be favored. Um, I mean, based on who's playing and who's not. And who's motivated and who's not to play this game. I'm not saying Ohio State players that are playing aren't motivated. I'm saying this Missouri team knows we have an opportunity to put an exclamation point on what's been an incredible season, and they're building momentum. I'm going to get to that. Let's take a quick look at Ohio State's resume, Brett, because it still doesn't sit right with me that there was all this talk about Georgia and not Ohio State. Like I understand why neither one of them are in the playoff. They shouldn't be. I don't understand why it was just this foregone thing that, oh, Georgia, they're one of the four best. Ohio State was, too. At 11-1, with the most notable wins being on the road at number 10 power-rated Notre Dame, for me, and at home against my number 4 power-rated Penn State, the Buckeyes' only loss is by six points on the road 
at my number one power rated and the committee's number one ranked. That's more important for the purposes of ranking here for the committee, at least. Michigan, in a game in which Ohio State had the ball with a minute left and a chance to take the lead with a touchdown. I mean, yeah, it, it didn't end the way they wanted. The but, like, you know what I mean? Like, wow, that was it. There was a lot of talk about one loss Georgia being one of the four best teams in college football. I am here to tell you, Ohio State, from both a power rating and a most deserving ranking standpoint, they had a stronger case for CFP inclusion than the Bulldogs. What they didn't have was that moniker of two-time reigning national champions, which, as I've talked about at length, shouldn't play in the conversation. It clearly does. At full strength, Ohio State is my number two power-rated team with the nation's number three defense and a season-worst ranking number 17 on the offensive side. All the regular season wins are great, but Ohio State is very clear about what its goals are each season. One, beat, as they say, that team up north. Two, win the Big Ten. And three, win the national championship. Those are their goals. They say that. I was at Big Ten media days. Players said it. Coaches said it. That's what they said. They don't hide from it, which I actually respect. Everyone said, oh, you know, know, we'll just take it one day. No, we have three goals in this program. These three things. Guys, the last three years, the Buckeyes are 0 for 9. Leave that there. That's what it is. For as disappointing as Ohio State season ended, Missouri fans have to be overjoyed with how their entire season went. In the preseason, my model pegged Mizzou as the number 38 team in the power ratings with a top 20 defense and a middle-of-the-pack number 57 offense. Over the course of the season, though, the Tigers' power rating was upgraded 8.5 points. They currently rank number 15 in the power ratings. That's good enough for the eighth best improvement in all of FBS from preseason to current in the power ratings. Um, And this defense, they ended up as a top 25 unit, as expected, but it was the offense that just shot up my unit rankings. They ended the year at number 11. At 10-2, and two, the Tigers won four more games than my preseason realistic expectations wow. projected. Brett, it, it's incredible. Second best in the nation behind only New Mexico State. New Mexico State won 4.2 more games. Um, so of teams that only played 12 regular season games, uh, Missouri was the number one overachiever. Losses to – I talked about Ohio State's loss, loss, only one, but losses for Missouri, top 10 power-rated LSU, top 5 power-rated Georgia. Those are the only blemishes on the resume. And this is the best team that Columbia has fielded, or they fielded in Columbia, excuse me, since 2013. That, that team you talked about that last played in a New Year's Six game. That's per my historical ratings there. Win or lose, it's been a season to remember for Missouri. And I'll tell you, Drinkwitz appears to have things rolling just in time for this 12-team playoff. They are excited in Columbia about what this team might be able to do in the expanded playoff era. And it's hard to argue with them right now that they shouldn't be. Yeah, I mean, you look at this matchup. If it were in the playoff, you probably wouldn't have all the opt-outs from Ohio State that you do. Um, but, you know, if they didn't draw Ohio State, Missouri's a team that, like, you don't want to play. I think Ohio State and Missouri are the two teams in that 12-team playoff that are outside the top four that you're like, yeah, I really don't want to play them. Uh, Oregon, and they're, too. And they're going to – yeah, and Oregon, yes. It, it, you know, Missouri's a team that next year is going to be very good again. Very good. They're going to return almost everything. Uh, and they, they're they landing some key guys in the portal now. I mean, this is an off-season conversation, but my goodness. Missouri, Ole Miss, Louisville. Those three teams, keep keep an eye on them. It's almost unfortunate for Missouri, and I, I'm not looking at their 2024 schedule right in front of me. I think, if I remember correctly, it's pretty favorable. It's almost unfortunate, though, that they did away with divisions at this time for Missouri because they were in the, the weaker of the two, the East. But I actually want to say – Based on the schedules that were put out there for 2024, I think Missouri has a pretty uh, manageable path. Now, it's the SEC. It's going to be hard. But in terms of SEC relative strength, I actually think Missouri, if I remember correctly, has a pretty um, pretty nice path, if you will, if you're going to have a path in the SEC. I have it in front of me. Uh, they have at A&M, at Alabama, Oklahoma at home, Auburn at home. That's kind of their – that's their difficult – that's their difficult stretch. You. You can go ten and two again against that, and if you go ten and two Brother, in the they, SEC, they do better in ten you, and two. I'm saying <laughs> if you go ten and two or better, <laughs> you will make the playoff in the SEC. Yeah. I mean that that's that, that there is no longer a question. If you finish SEC play, or, or, sorry, if you are an SEC team that finishes the year with zero, one, or two in the loss column, congratulations, you're in the twelve team playoff. Like I, I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll 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 raise my hand and own that. If ever proven wrong, I don't think I will be. Okay, back back to this game. <laughs> I will. I want to keep talking about these Missouri and, and all these teams for next year. I'm really excited about it. But hey, we got an exciting game in front of us. Anyway, there is a lot of value to be had with this line, no matter what side you're on. 
Didn't matter which. There's a lot of closing line value. A lot of folks are going to be happy with their tickets and then disappointed when that closing line value doesn't pay off um, if you got ahead of the news. Um, I'm not saying that I did. I may have a Missouri plus six and a half ticket from the, like, you know, someone was sleeping when they announced the Kyle McCord thing. Anyway, uh, my favorite bet on the board that is still available is over 49 points. I like it. I think these teams are going to be able to score on each other. And yeah, they both have outstanding defenses, but those defenses are just a little bit hindered on both sides. Um, I'm not sure that Ohio State has the slot corner to be able to slow down Luther Burton. I think he's going to have a heck of a game. I would be looking at his props. Um, it's probably going to be a pretty inflated number considering he's just one of the better receivers in the whole country. Um, but you know, if, if some or all of the remaining NFL guys opt out, then running back Corey Schrader is also going to have a day. And I like Brady Cook. We I talked about that last year when he was kind of a goofball at times, but I liked him a lot, and he's had a, a heck of a year. Um, the Buckeyes still have plenty of talent on offense, even against a pretty good Missouri defense. But again, missing their top two guys. A, a few names to watch for if you're not super in tune with Ohio State. Running back Dallin Hayden, receiver Carnell Tate, tight end G. Scott. I think those are going to be the three guys that are going to be making the most noise in this game here. Uh, I like over 49 points. That, that's the way I see it. Um, either way, I think this is going to be a great uh, matchup and a really good uniform matchup, too. Missouri's got great uniforms. I'm a big fan of All the right, we're gonna matchups. Oh, big time. Oh, yeah. Um, anyway, moving forward to another New Year's Six game. We have the Peach Bowl on tap between number 11 Ole Miss and number 10 Penn State. Penn State is a four-and-a-half-point favorite now, and this game carries an over-under of 48-and-a-half. Kicks off Saturday at noon Eastern on ESPN from Mercedes-Benz Stadium in Atlanta. Before I dive into this game, I have to, I, I kind of talked about in the last preview, but I have to acknowledge what Ole Miss is doing in the portal. My goodness, unreal haul. We'll talk about them in the summer. I think they still might have a, a pretty daunting schedule in this new SEC, but this is going to be a, a very good football team next year. Um, not that they're not this year, but they're going to be really good next year, I think. Anyway. Two pieces out for the Rebels. Uh, starting tackle, Micah Pettis and Edge uh, Cedric Johnson. Those guys are both hurt. Spencer Sanders, who I haven't heard from in quite a while, is apparently academically ineligible. Um, but anyway, they're in good shape behind Jackson Dart should he go down uh, because they have Walker Howard sitting there at quarterback as well. Trey Harris, their stud receiver that had a breakout year this year. He's coming back next year, and he's going to play in this game. Penn State, they have two new coordinators coming to town next year. Um, Andy Kotelnecki from Kansas and Manny Diaz, of course, left to be Duke's head coach. Chop Robinson isn't going to play. I'd keep an eye out on Kalen King and Johnny Dixon for opt-outs here. Um, Daquan Hardy will play, but losing King and Dixon would be a pretty big losses in the secondary for a very potent Ole Miss passing attack. Olufashanu, he's with the team through the bowl game. He said he was going to, but we'll see how much he plays. Uh, he's supposed to be like a top five. I, I think even last year he was a top five NFL draft prospect. He's a, at the very least top 10, uh, you know, maybe top five outside of the quarterbacks and he declared for the NFL draft. So I think he's going to be on a pitch count for this one, but the line did creep up from Penn state minus three and a half to minus four to minus four and a half. And now it kind of hasn't budged. I think it did touch three for like a hot second, but that was bought up pretty quickly. Lane Kiffin, not a great bowl track record. Uh, he's lost all the big ones he's coached in. Not all of them, but most of them that he's coached in. Uh, his three wins are in the Boca Raton Bowl twice with FAU and then the Outback Bowl in 2017. Other than that, he's over. Uh, James Franklin, on the other hand, you might think, well, he's in the same boat because he gets that big, uh, big game bad rap. That's really only against Ohio State and Michigan. He takes care of business in all the other big games. 3-1 and one in New Year's Six Bowl games with Penn State. His only loss was in that 2016-2017 Rose Bowl, that instant classic against Sam Darnold and USC. His only loss in, in New Year's Six games so far. Uh, his only two losses, or I'm sorry, the only two losses on Ole Miss's schedule, Georgia and Alabama, could do worse. Only two losses on Penn State's schedule, Ohio State and Michigan, you could do worse. I think these are two really good teams. This is going to be a great football game. They're at almost full strength. Um, however, if I do have to nitpick and pick sides here, uh, neither of Ole Miss's losses were all that competitive, to be honest. It was pretty in control for both Alabama and Georgia. Now it was before Alabama kind of uh, rounded into form offensively. But their best win on the season was against LSU, which is a good win, but that defense stinks, man. And that's how they won. They won by putting up 50 points. Maybe I'm being too specific here, but can Ole Miss beat a good team that also has a good defense? Hadn't seen that this year, and Penn State is that team. 
we got a lot of the same talking points here, Brett, in that final question. That's the one I have, too. I mean, it, it's fair to ask it because you're right. We haven't seen it, and I don't know if we will or not. For years now, Penn State has been, at worst, the third-best team in the Big Ten. Unfortunately for the Nittany Lions, the two best teams in the Big Ten have resided in their division, Michigan and Ohio State. I talked about Missouri peaking at the right time as we usher in the 12-team CFP era. Penn State is among the programs that will likely benefit the most from the expanded field. And the Nittany Lions are certainly yeah. the program that benefits the most from the Big Ten doing away with divisions starting in 2024. At full strength, Penn State's my number four power-rated team. Their only losses coming by eight points at Ohio State, which is my number two power-rated team, and nine points against Michigan, my number one power-rated team. This defense has been top five all season, while the offense has performed at a top 25 level. 12 points against the Buckeyes, 15 points against the Wolverines. If the offense could have doubled those point outputs in those games. And, and I, Kelly, like, Kelly, double, that's really not that many points. I mean, two more scores is what I'm looking for in each of those games against really good teams, really good defense. It, it's not insignificant, but it's also not out of the realm of, like, possibility here. If they could have just scored two more times in each of those games, which really is not that much to ask when you break it all the way down, Penn State would be your number one seed in the CFP. Per my model, this is the best team in Happy Valley since 1994. Much like Penn State, Ole Miss's resume, and Brett, you touched on this, only includes losses to top five power-rated teams on the road against both Alabama and Georgia. So take a step back. What did Ole Miss do to draw the ire of the Southeastern Conference office? Road trips to Bama and Georgia (laughs) in the same season? Playing in the SEC West is always tough. Like It's hard enough. This is absolutely brutal to have to go to Tuscaloosa and to Athens. However, as you mentioned, unlike Penn State's score lines in their biggest games, Ole Miss wasn't able to keep it close. They lost by 14 in T-Town. They lost by 35 in Athens. This is still a quality Rebel team, though. As you said, 2024 might be even better. We'll get to that at a later date, like you said. In fact, at number 16 in my power ratings, this is the best team from Oxford since Hugh Freeze had the Rebels flying, playing at a top-five level back in 2015. And with 2.4 more regular season wins than projected, Ole Miss finishes in the top 15 of my overachievers list in 2023. Again, we're going to talk about this later, but an early look at that 2024 schedule suggests the Rebels just might have enough to make a CFP push CFP push in the inaugural 12-team field. At full strength, my model would make this Penn State minus 10. These teams aren't at full strength, but they're not as many opt-outs as we see in other bowl games. As you said, it all comes back to that big question. Can Ole Miss win a game against a good team with a good defense? Haven't seen it yet. Here's now, their chance, because this I, is it. I know I'm going to hear from Ole Miss fans, so I, I do want to make a note about these Penn State losses. Um, both were pretty firmly in control of Ohio State and Michigan. They did score late garbage time touchdowns to pull it within, especially the Ohio State one. There was like 20 seconds left on the clock, and they just kind of punched one in at the end there to kind of bury it. Um, just because I know that we'll have people saying, well, actually – because uh, that's the that's that's what I encountered last year, and to be honest, I got I got buried leading up to last year's bowl game with Ole Miss um, for fading Lane Kiffin. But guys, I'm fading Lane Kiffin and Ole Miss again next year. I promise I'll be on your side. Don't don't hate me too much. Uh, but yeah, you know I, I lean Penn State with the points here. Um, but there is a play on the board that I actually do like better. I don't trust Ole Miss's defense enough, or uh, it, you know Penn State's offense was only stifled by elite defenses. And even then, sometimes not because they won up 31-0 on Iowa. So I'm going to take over 26.5 team total points for Penn State. I think that they're going to be able to score. I think that there's a stigma around their offense for being inefficient, which it has, but it's been stifled by the really, really, really good defenses, and Ole Miss isn't that. So I'm going to take Penn State over 26.5 team total points. All right, moving on to the Fraud Bowl. Sorry, the Music City Bowl. Uh, We have Auburn, a seven-point favorite against Maryland here. This game carries an over-under of 46.5 points, and it kicks off Saturday at 2 p.m. Eastern on ABC from Nissan Stadium. Uh, We could be dealing with some mixed precipitation from this game, rain, snow mix, real gross stuff. Uh, We're familiar with it here in the Midwest, but uh, this may be real gross and awful for Southerners at this game. Um, guys, I meant what I said. This is a big-time fraud bowl. They're 2-10 and 10 combined record against bowl-eligible teams. Not top 25 teams, not top whatever teams, bowl-eligible teams. And that includes getting their doors blown off by New Mexico State, of course. Um, 
Just like Ole Miss getting getting berated last year before their bowl game. Uh, guys, I'm going to victory lap. I'm sorry. I got berated on Twitter by Auburn fans about my assessment before the season started. And here we are, 6-6, six and six, guys. Congratulations. Uh, we really did it here. Maryland, uh, Talia Tagovailoa opted out of the game. The Terps were plus 2.5 before. And actually, an interesting contrarian pick that I had in my bowl pool. I, I flipped that. I changed it. I don't believe that, that Maryland's going to win this game. They're also missing tight end Corey Dykus and uh, linebacker, pardon me, Jay Sean Barham. They're both out of this game, and they're down three defensive backs. So there is some personnel stuff to note for Maryland. Auburn is down three defensive starters, but otherwise they've got the buy-in from their team, and they're pretty intact. Now, is Talia worth four and a half points of the spread? I would probably I'd listen to that argument. I, I don't think he's not. Uh, Billy Edwards is the expected starter. He completed four of his ten passes this season. And uh, he did throw a pick. So not, not a lot to be excited about. I don't really know how good he is. I, I don't think we're going to find out until his game gets rolling. Um, to be honest, though, as a whole, I don't know what happened to this Maryland offense down the stretch. They had a lot of talent at wide receivers, but the wide receivers kind of sucked. Uh, they had the six most turnovers in the country over the last three games, and that was an issue all year long, of course. Look, they were scoring almost 39 points per game in their first F- four FBS games. That went down to 20 over their next five FBS games. Now, we can chalk a lot of that up to playing Ohio State, Penn State, and Michigan, but Illinois, Northwestern, they didn't crack 30 points again until week 13 against Rutgers. They kind of sucked. I love that, Brett. Just telling you how it is. I, hey, man. They're you're, super you're, talented, but they were terrible. They didn't play I, well at all. I'm not disagreeing. I'm just, I think it's funny. I love it. Both Maryland and Auburn. Finished minus two and net one possession wins. What does that mean? They each lost two more one possession games than they won this year. So it's not hard to envision a world in which each of these teams has an extra win or two. But as it is, they enter with seven and five and six and six records, respectively, as you said, the fraud bowl. Man, two and ten against bowl eligible teams. That is that's a that's a damning statistic. I know Tilly is not playing. So obviously this Maryland team is going to look significantly different than the team we saw during the regular season, which by my numbers, and yes, Brett, I I know the offense did tail off down the end of the year there. This was the best Maryland team since 2003, finishing number 33 overall in my power rating. Maybe that's more of an indictment on where Maryland's been for the last 20 years than anything else. (laughs) But still, it's a good season in College Park by Maryland standards when we're looking at power ratings here. In the preseason, I had Auburn number 29 with 6.4 projected wins. At the end of the year, Auburn's my number 29 team with a 6-6 six and six record. So you're taking a victory lap saying, kind of told you guys, like, number 29, like, that's a, that's a pretty good team. But as we've talked about, you're playing in the SEC. And this year, you're playing in the SEC West. Of course, those divisions go away next year. Being number 29, that's not good enough. It's like these teams that, hey, we recruited at a top 15 level in, in the SEC West. Like, overall, we're top 15. Great. That puts you number six in your division, right? You're like, man, it, it is tough sledding in the SEC. The offense was worse than expected. The defense was better than expected. But overall, the model got it pretty right on the Tigers this year. At full strength, I think this would be a pretty compelling game. I'd make it Auburn minus one. But Notalia, among others, means Auburn should be able to find a, find a way to win this game a bit more comfortably. You said is Talia worth, you know, four and a half points. Or even, I mean, my number said just that six and a half is, is what the total cumulative effect of the opt-outs is feels probably about right and I'm a little bit lower on what a quarterback means to the spread than most out there yeah I'm with you and and it's not just Talia Talia could be worth four and a half points but missing all the other guys could you totally. know it, it, it adds up because there's a couple of NFL guys that they're not playing here I I know I was just ragging on Auburn and and the fact that well at least you have solace in that the New Mexico State game was a complete toss-up um, it wasn't, but anyway, I, I'm, I'm going to be nice to them. I do think that Auburn is going to line the ball up and just out-physical Maryland. Maryland's not a team that deals with physical teams very well. You saw what happened when they played Penn State, 51-15. Uh, to They got steamrolled. So they're not a team that handles physical teams very well. They're not great against the run. Uh, of course, you're betting into the absolute worst of the number that we've seen here. Uh, this is something that I got a better number on earlier on, but, you know, to back them, if you're still looking for it, maybe over Auburn's team total, you can get it under 27 points, which I like. I think they're going to be, like I said, able to line up and, and just kind of out-muscle Maryland there. Um, although Mike Loxley has actually been really strong in bowl games here, so I, I wouldn't be surprised to see Maryland overperform maybe some expectations, uh, but I, I don't really see how they're going to win this game here. 
Brett's, Brett, I'm going to jump in. You've said it because you said this a couple times, and maybe I'm preaching to the choir because if you're watching this, whether it you know lie or not lie, but whether you're watching it before bowl season, after bowl season, whatever it is, you, maybe you're already following Brett. You probably already are at Road to CFB. You need to follow Brett because he keeps he keeps talking about. Well, I already kind of got this one. It's not available anymore. Like follow the dude because when you follow yeah. him, you can get the lines that he's getting. And you don't have to wait for this and then get all mad in the comments about. Oh, Brett, you said this <laughs> and that. Well, no, Brett actually won because he got it when it came out. So follow Brett at Road to CFB if you're serious about betting college football, especially during bowl season. Maybe it's too late for 2023. Certainly not too late for 2024. Well, I appreciate the shout out, Kelly. All right, let's move forward. Our our no second to last New Year's Six bowl game that we have on tap here. We have the Orange Bowl. Um, Maybe a little bit of a sensitive subject for some. If you are a Florida State fan, you may want to scrub forward. Uh, We have number six Georgia. I have minus seventeen and a half written in front of me. I'm not kidding. I wrote this an hour and a half ago. We're at nineteen and a half now. Georgia is a nineteen and a half point favorite over Florida State in a New Year's Six bowl game, and the over under is just forty four and a half. not great. I have like an implied score thing down here. That's all jacked up too. But either way, this uh, game kicks off Saturday at 4 p.m. Eastern on ESPN from Hard Rock Stadium. Uh, we've talked about the FSU thing already. My fear that we talked about in that video is coming to fruition. Getting left out of the CFP was not a motivator for this team. It was fully defeating. They're going to be without nine starters. Most recently, Tate Rodemaker, who is going to be their starter, he decided to hit the transfer portal. Brock Glenn is now going to be the starter. Keon Coleman, Johnny Wilson, Jaheim Bell out, Trey Benson's out on defense, Jared Verse, and three other starters. Uh, Georgia actually had a surprising number of transfers. I guess you don't win a title in Athens, so you just jump ship. I don't know. Uh, It was mostly rotational guys, but not all. Jamon Dumas Johnson, biggest name, massive, massive loss for Georgia. He's in the portal. That, to me, was very surprising. Uh, And, of course, there's a lot of reasons that these kids transfer. It could be not a culture fit. It could be position coach. A lot of things. That one was very surprising to me. Now, Carson Beck, the quarterback, will return next year. That's a big deal, I think. Uh, That's a lot of continuity on here. We're also TBD on guys like Brock Bowers, Amarius Mims, Javon Bullard. Like, five or six early-round NFL guys are still in flux here. Uh, If the Georgia guys opt out, we're talking about Sun Bowl levels of personnel absences for this game. Again, though, keeping Carson back, I think, is the biggest thing in this game for either team. The line climbed from minus 14 to 17 to 17 and a half to 19 and a half, and it hasn't looked back. Uh, I said it before, I think that this could get ugly. I'm not laying this number now. Are you kidding me? At 44 and a half, I'm not laying 19 and a half points. If I'm looking for Georgia to, like, if I'm thinking about backing Georgia, I'm probably taking over. 44 and a half points rather than the number because that's something that could be backdoored. I mean, we're creeping up on three touchdowns now uh, against a team that's still top five by the committee's mark. Um, Either way, Georgia likely takes being excluded from the playoff, rightfully so, very personally. Uh, I trust Kirby Smart over Mike Norvell. So, yeah, that's why I think I would take over 44 and a half rather than back Georgia. In a real worst-case scenario, I'm not saying this is how the game is going to go, but in a worst-case scenario... Georgia covers that number completely by themselves. Just keep that in mind. They have the potential to do that. I don't really know if it involves the players or if this involves the players so much, but I also don't love the distraction from Florida State's lawsuits and all that stuff. It's noise. It's noise. It's distracting. I don't think the players look at it and are really all that affected by it, but, man, Florida State right now is that I'm staying very, very far away from this team. Yeah, I'm staying away from all the lawsuits. I, yeah, they're, they're flying left and right against everybody that has a pulse, it seems. Um, it's interesting. Whoever about, will listen. You, you, right. You talked about the transfer portal. And, and like I talked about earlier, I don't blame any player that opts out. Like, you do what's right for you. Same thing with the transfer portal. Hey, it's made available to you, and now we've got another exception where you can transfer multiple times not set out a year. It's available to you. You're, you're just playing the game, the, the rules of the game that's in front of you. I, I don't blame you. Go find the best uh, opportunity for you, the best position for you, your family, whatever it is. Like, go for it. Coaches, when you get at cruising altitude, that's where Georgia is. Georgia's at cruising altitude. I know they're not playing on the CFP this year. They're at cruising altitude. And it's, it's, it's tricky because you don't want to go on total autopilot because if you do, you'll quickly fall off that perch on, on the mountaintop. Like Nick, that's why Nick Saban's so good. He just doesn't allow his program to – they reach cruising altitude, but he keeps it in full, full gear, and they're cruising at that gear. Georgia's hit that too, and that's where they're going with, with Kirby Smart. When you hit cruising altitude, the transfer portal, the in, the out – 
Okay. All right. See you. We're going to bring someone else in who, by the way, he's going to be just as good, if not better than you that just left. So I'm not diminishing any of the people that they're losing in the portal. You never want to lose people. But when you're at Georgia, it's like, okay, next, like, come on in. So th- that all, Georgia's going to be right back where they were uh, next year again. So it'll be interesting to see. But that's just the transfer portal so interesting because depending on where you are in the hierarchy of college football, it has a different meaning for you. And we see that in multiple sports too, right? In my day job, you know, men's most basketball is our primary sports, mo- most prominent sports. We see the transfer portal affect them very differently than, than maybe a Georgia or an Alabama or Ohio State, whatever. Much like Ohio State, Georgia's season – defined by an ill-timed loss to a rival. If Georgia loses any other game this year, any other game, and then beats Alabama in Atlanta, we're sitting here talking about how the Dogs are likely favorites to pull off the sport's first three-peat since Minnesota in the mid-1930s, 90 years ago. That's the last time we saw a three-peat, and we were that close to seeing an opportunity to do it here. That's the beauty of the four-team college football playoff. Any given loss just might be the dagger that dashes your biggest dreams. That's what we're giving up starting next year. But for this year, this is the, quote, worst Georgia team since the COVID disrupted 2020 season. Uh, never mind the fact that 2021 and 2022 dog teams were among the best <laughs> to ever play this game. Yeah. Uh, this, this this Georgia team is incredibly talented, despite not being the same level of the last two years. They rank number five on offense, number six on defense, and number five overall in my power ratings. If both teams were at full strength here, Brett, clearly they are not. If both teams were at full strength, my model would favor Georgia by just four points, and this would be an absolute must-see Orange Bowl. Obviously, both teams are not at full strength, and that's largely on the Florida State side, as you outlined. I'm not going to rehash the injustice that was done to Florida State. I really don't care what you say, how you rationalize it. The Seminoles should have been in the playoff, period. They aren't. Here we are. From a power rating standpoint, the Knolls are number 11 in my model at full strength. The offense was number 7 when Jordan Travis got injured. They've fallen to number 19 in just a few games without him. That much movement this late in the year when you've built up so much in-season data, that's a long way to fall. So clearly not having Jordan Travis does make a huge difference for this offense. With Rotomaker, who is not playing, as you said, we're probably looking at a top 30, 35 unit on the offensive side. And again, if they're playing in the playoff, he's going to be playing. That's probably good enough. When you have a defense like the Knolls do, this unit started number 19 in August, and they only got better as the season progressed, ending at a season-best number 5. With 2.8 more regular season wins than projected, Florida State finished number 13 on my overachievers list. At full strength, this defense is legit, and this Knolls team is the best we've seen in Tallahassee since Jameis Winston won the Heisman and wow. listed, lifted excuse me, the crystal ball in the final game of the BCS era during that 2013 season. Brett, we will never again see a non-CFP bowl game involving two teams that have a combined one loss. Yep. I'm with you, and we probably shouldn't have seen it in the first place. But either way, I, I, I do want to talk about Brock Glenn really quickly because we have seen him in action against a very good Louisville defense. Louisville's defense is not Georgia's defense, and Brock Glenn went 8 for 21 for 55 yards. Johnny Wilson had two receptions for 21 yards. Keon Coleman, 4 for 19. Trey Benson, 2 for 15. Brock Glenn is playing without any of those three people. So now he is playing in a game... With receivers, he did not complete a pass to in the ACC championship game. So, yeah. I'll take over 44.5 just on the prospect that Georgia blows the doors off him rather than taking the number. But Florida State's in trouble. Mm-hmm. Clip, clip this and put on frozen, freezing cold takes, whatever you want to do. That's fine. But Florida State's in trouble. All right, our last game on our slate here. We have the Fiesta Bowl between number 25, Liberty, and number 8, Oregon. Oregon is a 17-point favorite in this game, and the over-under carries, uh, I'm sorry, carries an over-under of 67. By the way, Liberty is 23, not 25. I'm trying to short them there. Number 23, Liberty, if that makes any sort of difference there. This game kicks off Monday. Now, we're, we're skipping forward in time. This is going to be the, the 29th and 30th bowl games, but we're going to talk about this one to rope in all the New Year's Six games into one. Kicks off Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern on ESPN from State Farm Stadium. Uh, Oregon, they are 1 p.m. Eastern. Really? From the West Coast. Interesting. That's an early kickoff over there. Um, Oregon is missing some guys, but Bo Nix is not one of them. However, they are missing All-American center Jackson Powers Johnson. Uh, Running back Bucky Irving opted out. Troy Franklin is going to the NFL. 
And he got hurt in the Pac-12 championship game, so I don't know that he goes in this, but I don't. I haven't seen any formal announcement, I don't think, that he's not playing this game. Maybe I missed it. Goodness, is it difficult to keep up with these opt-outs. I'm also watching tackle Ajani Cornelius and a couple of guys on the defensive line, Brandon Dorless. I think Brandon Dorless is going. But Ajani Cornelius, that's a big loss if he doesn't play. He was one of the best tackles in the game this year. Liberty on the other side, they're missing two starters on defense with injuries. Uh, they may come back, but they did miss the Conference USA Championship. Their best defense lineman, Kendi Charles, hasn't played since week 11. He's in the transfer portal, but they've kind of been without him for a while. Otherwise, though, most of the rosters are intact, as they should be for games of this level. Our New Year's Six game should still mean something. Uh, now, Liberty. They just allowed 35 points to New Mexico State in the Conference USA Championship game, although the rest of the year they were... Pretty solid defensively. If you look at it, most of those scores, like the UTEP game and and, and games like that, UMass game, were very late garbage time scores. Otherwise, they were holding them to single digits for most of the game. But to be honest here, in what world are they going to slow down Oregon? The the number one most efficient offense in the country. I I think that's why we see this over-under of 67 points, because if Liberty's going to contend, they're going to have to score a bunch of points, because I don't think that they're going to be holding Oregon to anything short of 35 is being optimistic. I, I think it, 40 would be a, a job well done if they held them under that with Bo Nix. And look, I don't want to take anything away from Liberty. 13-0 is an accomplishment. How many programs in the country can, can boast that record ever in their entire history? Not many. Liberty is one of them. They absolutely deserve to be here. So don't hear what I'm not saying. I don't see a world in which this team makes it a game. Clip this. Yell at me in the comments. Shout at me on Twitter. Take it personally, whatever you want to do. Maybe I'll end up on old takes exposed or whatever, but Oregon is is far better. I don't even think it's close. And this isn't, now people like to bring up last year's Tulane-USC. This isn't the same thing. Tulane was a one and a half point dog with a much more talented roster than Liberty has against a very, very flawed team. This isn't the same kind of setup. Oregon is really good. They lost to one team this year. They have two losses, but they lost to one football team this year, and they're in the college football playoff, and both games were nail-biters down to – like, Oregon could very well be 13-0. They're, like, two possessions away from that. So, talent-wise on the field, this is a massive mismatch in my eyes. The market agrees. It's been moving the, the number in Oregon's favor the whole time up from minus 14. And Using my aggregated numbers, which would actually benefit Liberty, uh, since Oregon has a couple of notable opt-outs, Oregon's still the favorite by 18 points. I'm curious, though. I trust your numbers better. What do they say? At first, Brett, you said Oregon's maybe a couple possessions away from being 13-0. and 0. They're probably a couple plays away. I mean, a couple fourth, yeah. down, fourth down outcomes go the other way yeah. is maybe all it is. You talk about this game being at 1 Eastern. They need to because they got the two CFP games that they got to get later on, on on the same day here on, on New Year's Day. Um, I, I love what you said. Don't hear what I'm not saying. One of my favorite – I don't know if it's a GIF, a meme, whatever it is. Somewhere I saw somebody post something like, Twitter is this only place where I can say, I like pancakes. And the first response, the first the first reply is going to be, "Oh, so you hate waffles?" And yeah. It's like, no, that's a different sentence. Like, no, I said toxic. I like pancakes. It is I know. toxic. It, it's amazing, <laughs> and that so sums it up perfectly because people will not listen to what you say, but listen for what they want to hear, and that's not what you said. And I agree with you. Liberty deserves to be here. They are the highest ranked New Year, or sorry, G five team in my most deserving rankings, meaning they get that spot in the New Year Six based on merit. They're not the best, quote-unquote, from a power rating standpoint, G5 team. Not even close. No, SMU deserve, would make this a much better game. It, 100%, but they deserve to be there because yes. Boo Corgan said, oh, Liberty just kept winning. Interesting, Boo. Interesting the committee feels that way about Liberty. Okay, at full strength, Brett, uh, my model, as you smile, my model makes it Oregon minus 20 and a half. Um, that's full strength, which, again, we're not, but we don't have n- the most notable of opt-outs compared to other role games here. So that's what my model would make this. There is so much to like about this Oregon team. The Ducks are my number three power-rated team with the nation's number one offense. We talked about it, most efficient. Yeah, they're number one. They have been for the entire second half of the year. They, they started the year in the top five. They were always going to be good. They were great. And a top 20 defense. In a 12-team CFP, Oregon gets in, and get this, the duck, if the Ducks faced Washington again, Oregon would be favored. I, I know it's comical at this point. I understand. I'm just telling you. We might see that situation in the future, and that's how it would go down. In the preseason, Oregon had a power rating of 14.7. That was number 13 in the country. Maybe that was too low. I mean, clearly it was too low. 
because currently the Ducks power rating is 24.9. That 10-plus wow. point upgrade ranks number four in the entire country. Per my historical ratings, this is the best team in Eugene since 2014. This is the team other CFP contenders did not want to face in the playoff. They can thank Washington for not having to. And by the way, you then better hope that the Huskies don't bite you as well because that Washington team, we're going to talk about it on a later episode. They're no joke either, but from a power rating standpoint, this is who teams didn't want to play. In the preseason, I talked about how Liberty was set to face the easiest schedule in all of FBS. But because my model had the Flames at just number 86 overall, there was still just a 1% chance for them to go 12-0. and Well, now they're number 47. 13 wins later, Liberty took full advantage. Only five teams, including Oregon, improved their power rating more than the Flames over the course of the season, and only five teams exceeded preseason uh, realistic win-loss expectations more than the Flames, who won 3.6 more games than projected. Per my historical power ratings, this is the best Liberty team ever for the Flames. Now, granted, they only made the jump to FBS in 2018, but still, since they made that jump, this is the best team that Liberty's fielded. The offense is legit good. Brett, they rank number eight for me in the entire country. Yeah. Like that, That's opponent-adjusted. That's, that's everything. Are there really not more than eight offenses that I say, you know, head-to-head, or you wouldn't go head-to-head, but here we go. Play the same defense. There are more than eight, uh, seven other offenses that I think would do better than the Liberty, but the model views them very highly. This defense, their FBS average, number 65, 17 years ago, Brett, Boise State beat Oklahoma in one of the most memorable Fiesta Bowl games ever. Just last year, you talked about this, the G5 rep Tulane took down a Pac-12 team in USC in their New Year's Six game. I agree. These aren't the same things. I actually want to say Boise State might have even been favored against Oklahoma. People forget that. Uh, It's going to take a Herculean effort for Liberty to pull off the same feat against the Ducks in this one. I don't see it either, Brett. Maybe. You know, that's why they play the games. I don't see it. Yeah, I mean, they didn't play a Power 5 opponent all year. They played, like, three teams above 100 rank. I mean, like, that schedule was the easiest in the country, and I know people point to strength the record, and, yes, they achieved your 1% chance to go undefeated. Like, guys, they didn't play a single Power 5. They were, like, a blocked kick away from losing to Bowling Green at the beginning of the year. Uh, They, geez, that, that... shootout that they had with Sam Houston where they needed a last second thing and like good teams win but guys they're going from a 21-16 result against Sam Houston State to Oregon I don't get it look if there were sharp numbers out there that were going to or uh, sharp betters I should say out there that were going to back Liberty uh we'd have seen it and we wouldn't have seen it climb three and a half points in the opposite direction call it haterade call it whatever you want i absolutely cannot play liberty i won't play liberty any of that and you know if they do make this game or make this a game if they win the game feel free to victory lap but if you do show me your pre-live money line tickets first i don't want to hear it if you don't have if you don't have a receipt that you back liberty before the game started i need to see the pre-live ticket then you can victory lap and then hand up absolutely but uh, i don't see a world in in which this is really a, a truly watchable football game All right, Kelly, now that we're done taking shots at everybody, because, boy, do we take a lot of them on this episode here. That is it. That's all we got for you. We have a couple more shows coming your way for the remainder of the postseason. College football playoff is up next, so be sure to be subscribed to see that. But hop on over to our Discord server where you can connect with over 4,000 sports betting fans and get get live updates in our college football channel. There you can join a sharp and very active community. And don't forget to subscribe to Alliance YouTube for college football odds and betting videos for the remainder of this postseason. We'll be firing some stuff up in the offseason as well. And subscribe to us on your podcasting app of choice, be it Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, whatever you're using these days. There you can drop us a good review. If you're watching us on YouTube, let us know down in the comments where you lean on any of these games. Uh, like we said, we took a lot of shots at a lot of teams, so feel free uh, to, to air your grievances with us there. Kelly, before we officially close up shop, please let everybody listening know where they can find your work. Yeah, you can find me on X at KFord Ratings, the website kfordratings.com, and over on thelines.com. Thank you so much, as always, for watching. I'm Brett Gibbons. That's Kelly Ford. We'll see you all next time.